Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 77th episode of our podcast, I interviewed David Cancel, CEO and founder of Drift. David is a product-minded founder with a proven track record of success at building companies. His last four companies, that being Compete, Lookery, Ghostery, and Performable, were all acquired. And looking back at HubSpot's acquisition of Performable, it ended up being a key ingredient for the company's future success. David's current company, Drift, is the first and only conversational marketing platform. The company's raised over $100 million in funding from Sequoia Capital, CRV, and General Catalyst. In addition to being a successful founder, David is also an angel investor, mentor, author, and a podcast host of Seeking Wisdom. And if you haven't listened to Seeking Wisdom, you should certainly check it out. It is definitely one of my favorite podcasts. In this episode of our podcast, which is a bit longer than most because David and I had so much to talk about, we cover so many great topics like why David keeps building companies, growing up in New York and the start of his career at Bolt, which was an incubator, building truly visionary products during the early days of the internet, the background story on Compete and Performable, building the engineering and product function at HubSpot, including his philosophy on hiring without job descriptions, the story of Drift and how they are disrupting the way businesses are buying from other businesses, why there's been such an emphasis on building Drift's brand from the early days of the company, his thoughts on building a company's culture, the two books every entrepreneur should read, how he builds out his schedule and tips on time management, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, as you might imagine, Drift is hiring aggressively across all job functions. If you're interested in joining this hypergrowth company, you can check out their job openings by visiting Drift's biz page on VentureFizz. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash Drift for a complete list of jobs available. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. So uh, in this conversation, like we have so much to cover. You've done so much throughout your career. Um, so... The one question that I've always wanted to ask you is, you know, based on your success of building companies over and over again, like what drives you to keep doing this, to keep building companies? Yeah, uh, two things. One, crazy. Uh, so there's a, <laughs> a madness in uh, which I do think there's some some kind of craziness about founding multiple companies, right? Like there is some, which is a whole deeper conversation about like hmm, why would you want to do this over and over? Why would you? Uh, so there's there's some level of that, and then the other is that I'm just I just have one obsession, which is learning, and so like I'm obsessed with learning, and uh, this starting companies are kind of like a vehicle towards making myself putting myself in uncomfortable situations to learn something new. Right? And we're gonna talk more about that too, as far as uh, you, you know your constant desire to learn, which yeah. is which is awesome. Uh, but let's go back. Mm-hmm. to your foundation years, which um, Mike Troiano did an amazing podcast with you not too long ago. Yeah. How hard can it be? So yeah, Mike he, he goes very deep into your background. So we're still going to go talk about your background, but yeah. if you want to listen to David Cancel's like deep yeah, the origin story, that, that did an amazing job. And so, yeah. but where did you grow up? I, I was born in the Bronx, New York, and, uh, and then grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, so I moved to Queens when I was five, grew up there, and um, yeah, that's my story. And okay, so one thing that I caught, caught from uh, Mike Troiano's podcast was you didn't know how to speak English, mm-hmm. and what taught you how to speak English? Yeah, so I was, so my parents uh, both emigrated to the U.S., my mom from, Puerto, uh, from Ecuador, my dad from Puerto Rico, and uh, my mom, we only spoke Spanish at home, and my mom always spoke to me in Spanish, and uh 
you know, I only learned English. So now I say ESL, but when I was growing up, there was no ESL. That I knew. I never heard of ESL. In school, in any of the schools I went to, there was no ESL. And, uh, and so you kind of had to learn on your own. And so I learned English when I was going into kindergarten, first grade, around that time frame by watching TV. So I watch TV and I watch, I think this many people have done this, I watch TV, I watch Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island and a bunch of game shows and I would watch TV all day and I learned English that way. That's no one ever taught me English, yeah, which explains my, my grammar, so I have, yeah. <laughs> I watched way too much Brady Bunch growing up as a kid. Yeah, yeah, so that's and, all my English, yeah. And just, we, we, in our household, we just got our first uh, Roomba. Yeah. And we named it Alice, of course. Oh, yeah, Alice. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that's how I learned it, and then I went to school, and no one ever taught me, uh, there was no talk about, you know, learning English, but that's, I just had to learn on my own. And so, I think because of that... Um, you know, I'm naturally uh, quiet or introverted, and that was even for that I was even more so in that environment. And so I learned to, which is handy today. I learned to observe people and observe and kind of guess at what the meaning was behind what they were trying to express without really understanding the language. And I think I use that every day now, um, every day. And uh, but I didn't realize how how. Uh, how useful that skill was going to be. Now, uh, you had an incredible mentor mm-hmm. in college, this mm-hmm. uh, gentleman by the name of Sam. Well, yeah. so, so what was, how did that come about? Yeah, so I had, uh, I had three, I would say I had three mentors named Sam. And this is the first mentor I have Sam, uh, named Sam. One is Sam Lee, who we're going to talk about. The other one is a virtual mentor, which is Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Mm-hmm. And then the third is um, Sam Zales, who is actually uh, the COO of CarGurus and someone I've known since for a very long time. And so those are my three mentors named Sam. And, uh, but the first Sam, you know, one, you know, I grew up, uh, this, remember this is a long time ago, there's no Google, there's no books on this, no one is talking about it, there's no podcast, there's none of the stuff that we talk about every day. But I didn't even know what the na- word mentor was, right? I don't even know when I learned that, but it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but I didn't know what mentors were, I didn't know what role models were, I didn't know any of this kind of stuff. Right? It was a more innocent time before the, before the internet, right? Uh, and so you had to kind of stumble your way into things. So I didn't know what this, this person, that this person was going to be a mentor. But in college, I had a million, uh, I ultimately dropped out of college, but like in college uh, and high school and whatever, I, I was the master of always um, having a million jobs, right? Like I loved working and I didn't like school at all, right? Uh, I'd say you know, I don't, for most of my school experience, I, I actually didn't like, I didn't like school at all, which is kind of interesting because all I do now is read and, and talk about learning and obsess about learning and I am obsessed with learning but I didn't like school I didn't like the structure and uh, and I was bored all the time and uh, and you know I guess you know in retrospect I think all, all my teachers were uh, would get mad at me at school because they would say like that I didn't imply that I was lazy I didn't apply myself and like uh, but I think you know what they were saying was like that I had unfulfilled potential and that I wasn't doing anything and I got through all of school because I was uh, pretty good at taking tests but I would I did no work zero work right so I was one of those troublemakers that I did not do any work I did not read any book I did not do anything but then I could do well in tests and so that's how I got through um, and so 
one of these jobs was working at a, a warehouse in Woodside, Queens, uh, and uh, and it was a warehouse that was a cash and carry warehouse, which means that it's a warehouse that um, sells wholesale goods to in bodegas, basically, in New York. So if you know what a bodega is, which is like a 7-Eleven or something like that, and we sold mostly the stuff that... So store owners would come in, they would buy mostly the stuff that you see behind the counter and on the, on the counter when you go up. So like all the health and beauty aid stuff on the back, cigarettes, uh, like all this crazy weird stuff that you see on the counter, which is actually how most of the stores make all their money because all the commoditized stuff uh, there's no markup on. And all the weird stuff from the weird lighters, the weird like games, the weird whatever things in the front, five-hour energy things, mm-hmm. that's actually how they make all their money. Yeah. Like that's all the margin is there. So anyway, we sold that kind of stuff. Uh, I got that job because my friend George, who's also, his last name is Lee, unrelated, uh, who's my best friend growing up, he, his mom convinced this person, Sam, uh, who owned this place, to give me a job. And the reason that he had to convince him was that I was the only person who's uh, not Chinese who worked in this, in this place, right? So they would not hire anybody who's not Chinese. Uh, and so I got this job, and she she vouched and said that I was a hard worker, and so that which was the key. So I worked there, and it turned out that Sam ended up being this incredible mentor for me because um, Sam kept I didn't understand it at the time, but Sam kept giving me more and more responsibility over time because uh, because I always not I liked work and I liked doing more than was expected of me, and so I was always going, which I thought was normal, but. Turns out it wasn't normal. And so I kept doing more and more and more, so he kept giving me more, and then all of a sudden I was doing all the ordering, and then I was managing people, and it was kind of weird because I was like, whatever, 18 years old, and so, and everyone was much older than me. And so like he kept giving me this, I didn't really understand what he was doing, and then he taught me, um, he got me more interested again in computers because he was designing, he's brilliant, uh, Taiwanese businessman, he was designing his own ERP and CRM. Right. Oh, so on custom his own. built. Custom built. He yeah. was coding it while he ran this whole thing. Okay. He was also incredibly frugal. No one who even worked in the business uh, knew that he actually owned this business mm-hmm. and actually several other businesses. He was probably the first millionaire that I ever met in my life. I didn't know what that was either. Like, uh, But he was super – you could never, ever t- tell. I only knew because I knew – this other person who knew his family, and so I knew the real story of who he was, but he, it was amazing. I learned so many lessons. Like, people would come in and ask for the owner, and he would say, oh, the owner's in Taiwan, right? Like, he would, no one actually knew that he owned all this stuff. So he was an incredible mentor for me, and uh, I still look back at a lot of the lessons he taught me. So once you, you know, moved on from college, Mm -hmm. you you worked uh, for a company in New York that Mm -hmm. was an early incubator, right? Like, yep. they, like they were incubating their own companies, one of which was an early social networking site. Yes. Like, and this is 1990. Before Elizabeth, who's on the camera, was born. <laughs> uh, so it's 1996, 96. around that era. Yeah. Um, something around that. It's all fuzzy at this point. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, I became, uh, in college, uh, which I ultimately dropped out, um, you know, I ended up, I didn't go to any class, and uh, really, and uh, which was my thing, uh, And uh, but I took tests again. Uh, but I spent all my time in the library, right? And, uh, and I was studying computer science and accounting at the time, and uh, both, double major. And uh, what was interesting to me was back then the computer labs 
were not connected to the commercial internet, right? Because it was early days. And uh, but in the library, there was this thing. There was uh, we had some computers there that had early versions of Mosaic and then later Netscape mm-hmm. that were connected to the internet. And right. so I basically spent most of my college in the library, right? Although I didn't go to any class, I was actually in the library for like. 12 hours a day easily just on the early internet. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me, even though I was studying computer science, I was somewhat bored by it. But the idea of this global connection, this idea that I can talk to anyone around the world, which comes back in this theme throughout my career, like all of that was just like, it was mind blowing, right? Because if you, if you're old enough to remember back then, right, like this was mind-blowing that you could talk to people around the world, right? Like, we take it for granted now. Like, it was incredible. So I became obsessed with it. And I became obsessed with, like, how do you build one of these things? And how does this work from a technology standpoint? So I, I found a news group, which don't exist anymore. Right. And I was talking to someone in the news group, uh, which would be like a message board or bulletin board or forum today, and or Facebook groups or something like that. And they were basically three people who were starting this company in in Manhattan, in Soho, uh, and I went there, talked to them about joining them, which was easy. Like, like I had no qualifications to join them, but like uh, it was the early. They were none of them were engineers or programmers, mm-hmm. uh, and I wa- I had taught myself everything um, because of this, you know, insanely curious. And uh, back then. You know, like the fact that I could uh, spell CGI, right, or I could spell any of these acronyms was mind-blowing because you could not find anyone, you know, it was so scarce. Like nobody knew how you did any of this stuff, but I knew how to do it. And uh, so they hired me, and I was chief software architect and had all these titles, whatever. But, like, basically, we started from nothing. was three of us. That company was called Concrete Media. Uh, we paid the bills by doing agency work for other startups that were starting at the time and other brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was an exciting time. It was uh, all these things were starting in, in Manhattan, Silicon Alley, which is called now. And uh, all of a sudden, these things were exploding, and... Concrete Media ended up splitting to three companies. One of them was Concrete Media, the agency thing. Mm-hmm. One of them was an incubated idea, which was called Bolt, B-O-L-T dot com, and that's the one you were referring to, which I ended up uh, going because I loved it. I built that from scratch, and I ended up wanting to stay with that one and not be involved with the other stuff. And then a third one, which my now wife ran, but this is how I met her, which was called Girls on Network, which is this network of... Uh, women-focused sites, which would be like a network like Glam or Sugar or one of these things. And this is a company she started. Yeah, she started. Yeah. And she's, it's, it was and, acquired. Yeah, it was acquired by Oxygen Media, and it became the, it was a big thing at the time. And anyway, so I created we created this thing called Bolt. Uh, there was no such thing called a social network. Uh, <laughs> we called it a community media property on the web, which has a good ring to it. Uh, but the idea was like that we were going to take a lot of the ideas, and nothing is new, but a lot of the ideas that existed in um, like um, stuff that was like in message boards, things like Prodigy, early AOL, early CompuServe, like you had, a, these were proprietary systems, news groups, those kind of ideas that existed, and that we were gonna create the web versions of those, and that we were gonna target that around a community that was like aimed at 13 to whatever, 18, 20 something, but basically teens, like we were gonna create this teen 
social network, right? Although we didn't know that, that name. And we did. We created this thing called Bolt. I look back at it now, and like most things of that era, like all of it was right except for the timing, yeah. right? Like, but dial-up modem. Oh, dial-up modem. Like, <laughs> it was dial-up modem. Uh, you know, 56K modems were the fastest things you could get. Uh, despite that, our average session time, which was the amount of time that the average Bolt user would stay on the website, was 56 minutes, which if you think about it in dial-up, is like mental, Amazing. right? Like, uh, so they would sit there, and, uh, and we created everything. We created everything that you would see in a modern Facebook or anything like that. We had message boards. We had your own personalized email address. We had a thing called a Bolt Store, which was like Threadless, where we create uh, user-submitted clothing and, wow. and sell that. Yeah, e-commerce. Like, <laughs> so, so you built a, a product that there's been like giant companies that like, are standalone of one oh, totally. portion of what you built. Totally. And we built, you know, uh, everything you could think of, groups, uh, profile pages, uh, you know, we had gamification in there with, uh, uh, what did we call them, badges. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had all, we built all this kind of crazy stuff. It was awesome. And that, we grew pretty fast. You know, I left when we were like 200 people or something like that around that. Um, in 99, I left uh, right before like everything collapsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the height. We had filed to go public. We filed our S1. We were going to go public. Mm-hmm. But I left because my wife, my girlfriend at the time, wanted to move back to Boston because uh, she had sold her company and th- did that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so I followed her, uh, not knowing anyone in Boston. But Bolt was amazing. We had millions of, it was one of the largest, it was probably uh, second largest, like what we would call social network at the time. The other one was called iVillage, which was, uh, it was more content than community. And, uh, you know, we had millions and millions of users throughout the world using it. And I still meet people to this day that will reference it and be like, I was one of those teenagers on Bolt. And it was amazing. That's awesome. Uh, it was mental. Yeah. And everything was, it was exciting because uh, everything of that era, especially when we were building that, was like, Basically, we were pirates, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was like a pirate. When you, you know, I was listening to the stories about the homebrew computer club with, you know, Apple computer and all this yeah. kind of stuff. This was our equivalent uh, of the early internet. And there were a lot of companies that were getting started then, but nobody knew anything, right? There was no Google. There was no search engines, really, at that time uh, that we would think later, AltaVista and a bunch of other search engines would come up. But, like... We had to invent everything, like how it worked, what was the web server, how it, how does wire, uh, like what was the networking protocol, like basically everything that had to do with anything we had to invent. And yeah, it was the limitations of design. Oh, it was crazy. crazy. 56K modem, yeah. it was nuts. We built the original version of that website in something called Future Splash, which later became Flash. Okay. It was bought by it was bought by Macromedia, and then yeah. Macromedia was bought by Adobe. It is what is known as Flash. But it was the version, first version in 1996 of Bolt with 56K modems, and then this failed quickly, so we got we pivoted it, was video. Mental. Unbelievable, right? Mental, right? It was video. It was like these video, it was video. We were creating the video. It was not user-submitted video, but we were creating the video and uploading the video yeah. and doing all that stuff, and that was 1996. It was mental. Good idea about, you know, 15 years too early. Yeah, YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's fast forward. So you moved to Boston, mm-hmm. and yeah, you did work at uh, Lycos. Yes. And then Byerzone, where yep. you met Sam, Sam Hale. That's what I met. Yep. So, uh, but let's skip ahead. So at what point did you know, hey, I want to start my own company? Like, did you always know that in the back of your mind? Yeah. Like, so, so yeah, yes, I mean, from a little, my parents both worked for themselves and uh, which sounds glamorous but it wasn't right it was mostly like you know ever most immigrant stories and so like um, so 
you know, one, uh, my wife will tell you, like, I'm not good at being told what to do. Uh, so I had that going for me, which probably is why I didn't go to class. Uh, and uh, and I, two, I had grown up in this environment. And so I always had this idea of, like, I want to start a business. But again, I had no role models. I, had, I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so when I was working for Sam Lee in the warehouse, I had that even more because I saw him as an entrepreneur. Again, I did not know the word entrepreneur for probably 10 years after working there, right? That was not a word that was popularized. That is a word that has been popularized. I always say it's like, you know, after Facebook, post Facebook, like everyone wanted to be an, an entrepreneur. Yeah, what it was no one make in, a movie out of it. Yeah, like I always say like entrepreneur, when I was growing up, that just meant loser, could not get a job, right? <laughs> People would look at you like you were like some maniac, right? right? Like what? You would leave your job to do this, like the stupidest thing ever, right? So like, I didn't know what it meant I would get these magazines back then, which was the only way you could see some of this stuff. But all the business stuff that you would read about was either, you know, Fortune 100 or, you know, open up a McDonald's franchise mm-hmm. or like a dry cleaner franchise. That was like, that was the only, that was the only thing that you could read about. And so I didn't really know what it was, but I got this experience through working with Bolt. Like we started something from the beginning. Right. Because uh, I was the fourth one there. And uh, it was amazing. I wanted to do that again. And I loved it, like creating something from nothing. And so I got to Boston. I was at Lycos Fire Zone. And then we started to compete in 2000, uh, the end of 2000, November of 2000, which was the first company that I, I founded. And, and how did you come up with the idea behind Compete? Yeah, the, well, the idea, you know, we got angel funding from Full Circle, Reed started it, right? Really? Yes, of course. Seed yeah. funding? Yeah, so Reed, I met, I didn't know Reed at the time. Uh, I've known him forever, uh, since 2000. Yeah. But I had, we were, it, he had joined, him and three other people uh, had joined Idea Lab, which was an incubator based yeah. out of Pasadena. Bill Gross. Bill Gross, yeah. And Bill Gross had started all these companies, including GoTo, which was a net zero and all these things. But GoTo is most famous for creating the PPC model, which then Google later copied, which is Google AdWords. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like, anyway, they had joined Bill Gross to start Idea Lab Boston, right? And Idea Lab Boston, at the time, was in the same building. They didn't have real space yet. They were in the same building that Firezone was in. Okay. And so I got to know Reed. Back then, you know, we'd go to a cafeteria, right, basically. And uh, that was the only, because this was at Cambridge Park Drive, right? Like, there was nothing okay. over there but right. the cafeteria. So yeah. I got to know Reed and these uh, these two other people, three other people who we were starting this thing, and they had a collection of ideas, and they were branching out because Idea Lab had only done in-house, like fully owned, like fully incubated, fully owned kind of things, mm-hmm. and they were starting to branch out because at the time they had raised a billion dollars of funding, which was insane, um, and they were starting to angel invest. They had a, a venture arm that they were investing as well as well as incubating. So it was this kind of transformation time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, they they had were working with this kind of EIR at the time. Another read read kind of. He's been at Microsoft for a long time, and he had come out of the syndicated research world, which was uh, Yankee and all those yeah, kind of sure. places. Um, and they had access to this data, which was net zero, the ISP data. And so we started to talk about this idea of, like, could we use this data for anything? Because uh, Bill Gross had uh, created this, like, uh, 
like homebrew thing inside of based on net zero data, which is a series of reports that he could run to try to understand what people were searching for in order to understand like what companies might be new categories, right? Okay. So we saw that, Reed saw that, and we were like, I think we could create a company around that, and that was the beginning of Compete, right? So it was really looking at that. Uh, one thing that I skipped over was like Bolt, even though it was a social network, was like the whole idea for Bolt in terms of making money. Uh, because this was even before ads, right? Like before ad supported stuff was like, oh, it was this thing called Bolt Labs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we were going to, and we were, we had built our own survey platform again and our own polling platform, like a survey monkey, like right. whatever. And we had been surveying like every day and the te- and teams on the site would create their own polls about like, what's the favorite thing to wear or like, what's the cool this or what's whatever. And we were using that data and aggregating it up and offering it to brands, selling it to brands as syndicated research, right? And so even though it was a social network, we were doing syndicated research, which was why I was interested in this compete idea. And you had a, like a business model for both. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, because there were no ads still. We yeah. couldn't say, oh, it's just going to be ads or eyeballs. It was like, that came later, but it was like, oh, we needed this syndicated research model and we built this bold labs thing. Yeah. And it was compete, obviously, it scaled. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was a longtime user of the, you know, the yeah. free consumer yeah, version, the free version. version yeah. which was amazing. It was such a great resource just to kind of get a gauge of where you stood versus your competition. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you obviously grew the company. Like, what, what were some of the learnings from that, like your first company that ultimately was acquired by WPP? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, acquired by WPP and, uh, in 07, 08. And, um, there's a whole bunch of lessons. Like the the biggest, le- so many painful lessons. Uh, hope I've relived some of them, but I try not to repeat all of them. Um, the most important one, the meta one, was like timing matters, right? The same lesson from Bolt and from this, like timing really matters because in retrospect, we started the company in November of 2000. The bubble had already burst from the stock market standpoint in March of 2000, right. so it was already going down. So like not a good time to start a company. We were but one of the sometimes few the yeah. best time to start a company. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the best. Like not doesn't a good time feel good yeah, when you're in really it. Shitty, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it was in that first year, 2000 to 2001, was rough uh, most of the year. But we built a customer base. We were starting to go. We were starting to work. We built a team. It was growing. And then September 11th happened, which was like the sec- that was the real thing. That was the real thing that spiraled the eco- uh, the economy down. Right. Because after the, the bubble burst and it was bad. But business was still happening, and then 9-11 happens, and it was like the, the world shut down. It was like, shut down. We lost almost all of our customers right there. Next day, boom, gone. Uh, we had to, we then had two rounds of layoff through uh, 02 maybe 03, something like that, uh, in the company, which was the most painful thing that I've ever gone through, right? Um, you know, layoff, uh, there's a whole nother lesson. Like, that, that is way harder than firing someone. Yeah. Way harder. Like, firing, it's like this, that, you know, yeah, performance, performance yeah, yeah. and whatever, uh, and, uh, and you've been working through it, but when you have to turn to a group of people uh, who, the only reason that they're in this company is because they believed in you, and you have to say, that's it. And you have to do it in that environment, which back then, which I knew 100% of these people are not getting a job. Yeah, there's no job. It's jobs. not like today. No right? jobs. It's like they're not getting a job. So, yeah, right? so and recruit- most of them did not have a job for over a year. Yeah, if you're a software engineer, no jobs. There's no job. Yeah, at that time. Uh, and so, like, most of those people did not have jobs for a year. Yeah. Uh, and so it was rough. 
and so that was one of the harshest lessons. But the, the, the reason timing, this timing lesson was so important was that when we started the company, again, there was no category called SaaS, but our idea was around SaaS, that we were going to sell these, these reports online via credit card. We called it uh, business software online through e-commerce. Like, we had some, like, it made no Crazy sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing. And it was like, every time we explained it, people were like, what? No one's going to buy anything but books online. Like, what? Businesses are going to buy reports online with a credit card? Like, what? Uh, and no one, yeah, it made no sense. And so we got laughed at. And um, But later, in 06, like, all of a sudden, it was just like, yeah. Because PPC was booming, all this stuff was happening, Google was booming, like that totally made sense. If we would have started the company then, when it was a category, then it would have made sense. We would have had momentum. Yeah. But instead, we struggled through 00 through 04, really, uh, just brute force our way through to just exist. Yeah. And uh, and so I learned timing matters. I learned partners matter because we had an amazing another mentor in my life. His name's Ted Dintersmith. He was the uh, uh, he's a partner emeritus at CRV. He's retired now. He's written a whole bunch of books. He's kind of an education uh, philanthropist right now. Does amazing stuff in education, um, and uh, has done a movie around education. Has done multiple books around education, and uh, is trying to reform education. Amazing mentor. But he was my main investor. I had three others. And he stood by us over and over and over to such a degree through that time that I was always like, why doesn't he shut this company down? Yeah. Like, I would shut this company down, right? Like, I would, uh, didn't make sense to me. Anyway, you know, I'd say other people that were going through the same thing with him were Eric Paley, mm -hmm. you know, at the time. That was one of his other investors. Uh, so he'll talk a lot about Ted. Natiza, uh, which, you know, uh, ultimately went public. Like, those were his three companies. Wow. Compete, uh, Eric Paley's company, yeah, Broncos, Broncos, which he yeah. sold. Yeah. And then Natiza, he had three companies wow. uh, through that time before he retired. So, you know, like, partners mattered. And so later when I was selecting investors, including at Drift, I was always like, I'm going to... I'm going to optimize for people that are, you know, going to have our back when the shit hits the fan, which is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've stood loyal to CRV for multiple companies now. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I hear, you know, it's like whether it's the entrepreneur or the investor when mm -hmm. the economy is in dumps, that's when you see true colors. Yeah. 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 And I got to see, re you know, I had dealt with investors a lot at Bolt and uh, Firezone and all these companies. And I saw, yeah. I saw the other side, which was like not good behavior, and uh, lots of it. And uh, and then I saw this, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. And so, yeah, so still still a mentor of mine. And lots of people have spun off from Compete and, mm -hmm. you know, done some amazing things. So yeah, yeah, great, long, great. long list of people yeah. out of Compete, long list. Of, that's probably my, across, uh, amongst all the stuff, is just like, yes, yeah, started a bunch of companies, that's cool, but the people have all gone on to do these amazing things. Compete had an amazing list of people come out of there that are still doing amazing things. Uh, Performable has, an you know, for such a small company, because uh, we were like 20 people at the time. Amazing uh, list of people like, you know, Accu's, uh, Jonathan was early sure. performable. Uh, you know, um, Andrew, who started Clavio, early performable. Uh, my friend Craig, who just sold his company. All of these people have gone on to, to massive success. So, so uh, performable, right? Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, exit from Compete, you start performable, which... The idea of what you were trying to create with Performa was a like a like a customer driven approach, mm -hmm. which now it seems like yeah, it's obvious. But yeah. then it was like, 
when you talk to your customers and figure out what they want, yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that was our kind of model for like developing. We stumbled upon it at Performable. But the idea was like, you know, it's the progression. Like by the time we did Performable, which I did in, started in 09 at some point, 2009, uh, at that point I was like not so interested in like just product ideas. I was like, okay, what are the macros that are happening in the market? Like what are the big changes in the world? And one that I saw was that that we had built all these marketing systems at the time that um, that basically treated everything was anonymous. There were no user IDs in there. There was no such things as profiles. Right now, there isn't a piece of marketing software that you could log in that wouldn't have profiles in it. Yeah. And uh, so there was no way to unify a customer because of that, right? It was just like, it was kind of like if you look at Google, everything was like Google Analytics. It was just a bunch of aggregate numbers, nothing else. And my observation was like that the number of channels that we were starting to support from a marketing standpoint were exploding, right? Because this is 2009. It's like early social, like Facebook and Pinterest and this and that. And so like the same marketer would have to support a customer across all of these different channels mm -hmm. that were not slowing down. They were like increasing in importance and, and how many were created at the time. And um, but yet there was no way to unify this thing because there was no customer in the software. Right, the idea of a customer did not exist. That only existed in sales software. In the case of a CRM, that did not in, in, uh, anywhere did not did not live inside of marketing software. So we created the, the company around that idea. Uh, again, you know it's all funny in the past, but everyone laughed, including uh, people on the team thought it was the stupidest idea ever, right? Like, you know, the minute that, I remember we mocked up 2009, like uh, a user profile image, you know, right. an avatar, yeah. put av customer avatars in this marketing software, everyone said this was the stupidest idea ever. Like marketers are never gonna do this. Right. Uh, they want aggregate stuff. Marketers don't have time to, like, who cares about who this person is, right? It was all about anonymous lead gen, and it was like, but I thought it was super important. And so we went forward with it, and then we ultimately created a marketing automation system around it uh, that was like a multi-channel marketing automation that could basically understand all the stuff that's happening everywhere, take that into account, and change the marketing automation rules based on that, which was novel at the time. And so, and then in 2011, we got acquired by HubSpot, which was probably they were, you know, similar similar size as probably we are now at Drift, you know. 200 and something employees, you know, you know, probably similar revenue size. Um, and so we went over there. We were about 20 people. Uh, Which, you know, HubSpot obviously being an anchor company here, and I really, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing what they accomplished as far as starting a movement. Mm -hmm. right? Inbound marketing, that didn't exist. Yeah. So Brian Halligan, Darmash, mm -hmm. you know, like created this whole concept that mm -hmm. now is everywhere and you know, there's inbound conference that is massive yeah um but what was interesting about hubspot is um you know they had this company that was amazing at selling and mm -hmm. vision yet from what i understand is they needed someone to come in and build a core product like mm -hmm. a core product of the value of what our customers buying and that's what led them to acquire your company right yeah uh, yes, and uh, you know, I'd say you know they had this three legs to the stool, and they had two incredibly strong legs, which were marketing and sales, and had gotten them really far and really high. Uh, I'd say you know I knew a lot of the board members, David Scott and Larry Bond and Andy Payne, and all these people, and Gail Goodman, and so I had known all of them, and they were pushing the company to to find to acquire someone or to bring in someone to to lead product and engineering and all of that stuff because uh, they thought there was a problem there. 
Uh, and so they needed to make that third leg stronger. And so, you know, at the time, you know, when I got there, HubSpot was, or before I got there, HubSpot was really just top of the funnel, right? It was a CMS, host your website, SEO grader, like keyword grader. Yep. Uh, so how well you're doing on Google kind of stuff. Uh, and some other kind of high-level stuff. There was no email. There was no CRM. There was no none of the stuff that you might think about today. There was no personalization. It was like nothing. It was just like website, SEO, and the whole proposition, which was strong then, was like get found on the internet, blogging. Right? It was a blogging platform. And uh, and so we came in and had to start all over from a team standpoint, from a software standpoint, rebuild everything. And uh, not only the top of the funnel stuff, but then build the middle of MoFu, which is the middle of the funnel stuff, which was the performable stuff, right? Uh, marketing automation, but we rebuilt that from scratch. Uh, we rebuilt everything around the original core idea of Drift, which again, didn't exist at the time at HubSpot, which was like the customers at the center, right? The customer is the most important thing. That customer is the most important thing, which then let us build all the other products. It let us personalize the website. It let us uh, connect to social. It let us build the marketing automation stuff. It let us build the CRM later. It let us, like everything got built because of that core idea, uh, which didn't exist at the time. And then we rebuilt, migrated everything, and kind of the rest is history, I guess. So I listened to another recent um, edition of uh, Seeking Wisdom, mm -hmm. and you had the CEO of Lever on. Oh, yeah. And um, you talked about building a team at HubSpot and how you didn't allow Keith Pesco Salido to have a, a, an ATS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and He only got an ATS recently. <laughs> yeah. So, But you say it was because you didn't want job descriptions yeah. and that people... You know, you're going to hire based on you know requirements and qualifications. That it was, mm -hmm. you know, we want to hire talent. So yeah, the, yeah. What's this, that mindset about? You know, this goes back to this idea. Like at the time, I thought, and I still, I believe it even more today. Like, to, in order to scale, we got to focus on the things that don't scale, right? We wrote this book. If you want a free book, physical book, uh, we wrote this book called "This Won't Scale." Uh, you can download it on our website. But I believed in, like, all these things that don't scale were the key. And so, like, again, I believe, like, it's all meta. Like, now I can look back at everything I've done. I'm like, oh, it's all the same, actually. It's all the same stuff. Like, it's about people at the center. It's like this. Right? But, like, I did Funny enough, going through all of it, I never realized the, the, the thread that put it all together. But, like, so I, I had this obsession about, like, hey, if we want to recruit the best team. At the time, nobody from an engineering product standpoint uh, HubSpot did not have a good reputation in Boston. Hard to believe now, right? But like, had a pretty bad reputation. So no one would show, no one would uh, want to go to HubSpot to interview, right? And so like, we couldn't get anybody. When we got there, we couldn't get the people that we wanted to show up. And so uh, Elias, who's my co-founder at Drift and Performable, uh, and I were like, we're going to hunt people one at a time. We're going to convince people. We're going to build this team one at a time. And we did it with Keith by... Uh, so it was the three of us and we said we're not going to have an ATS we're not going to have any of that stuff stop focusing on that stuff we got to focus on the people mm -hmm. and so you know I got maniacal I went nuts on a bunch of things I first thing I did was like okay what does it look like from a candidate looking in to this company what do they see the first so the thing candidate I, experience yeah candidate experience and I said what's the first thing they see okay they go on Google uh, they probably type in, I mean, uh, LinkedIn, they type in HubSpot, and they probably type in engineer. So I did that. All of a sudden, 
it was a, a ton of people that had engineers something in their title who were not engineers. Right. Right, because we had people in, in sales and in support and in this and finance and whatever, and this there was like everyone was using this I'm an engineer, engineer, engineer uh, thing, and I'm like, first thing, and you know from uh, recruiting technical people, like uh, that they're going to look at that and be like, hmm, that person doesn't look any good, I don't want to be there, right. right? So it's all like, you know, uh, it's all uh, for engineers, it's about like, you know, pecking water, it's like, how good are you kind of thing. Yeah. And so, so then I ran around the entire company, up and down, and I made everyone who had an engineer title in the company uh, change the title. So like everyone, they weren't in my team. I ran into every team. You are not an engineer. Take that engineer title off. Take that off. Take that off. Take that off. Take that off. All right. So, uh, which, you know, was crazy. But like I ran around because I wanted the experience to be like when someone searched for engineer and HubSpot at the time, that they were just going to see the actual software engineers and that they were going to see these amazing people that they wanted to work with. The next thing that I stumbled upon was like video. This is why I became obsessed with video. I said, okay, no one is responding to Keith. He's sending these cold emails. No one's responding to Keith. And I, and I, so I got a friend. At the time, you know, I knew Chris Savage and Brendan, who had started Wistia from Performable sure. Days. They had done a video for uh, on Performable yep. way back. Uh, and, um, and so uh, another Chris that... Uh, works over at Wistia. He didn't, wasn't full-time yet. He's uh, the head of video there. Uh, I had asked him to do a video for us, so he was a contractor. So he, I paid him to do a video of HubSpot of just walking around, which now everyone does this, but yeah. no, it didn't exist, right? Uh, I had never seen it. Just walking around talking to people who work here, yeah. but not only talking about it, but show everything. What does it look like? What's in the office? What's going on? What's in it was basically day in the life. Uh, again, it was a weird video of the time uh, in, in 2011, like that's kind of a common thing now. Mm-hmm. So I had him do that video, and I had Keith, every time he would reach out to someone, he would just send the video, nothing else. And all of a sudden, people were responding. That's oh, awesome. this looks cool. That's awesome. Oh, you use that technology? Oh, that looks, it looks cool. Like the vibe looks cool. So we started to get people in. But we stood on this, like we're going to recruit one at a time. Mm-hmm. I don't, and then uh, I got rid of lots of things that, because we kept, I think that we do this ourselves, we, we're doing it there, we naturally want to regress to this idea of like, okay, we got to go do things at scale now, uh, we need an ATS, we need job descriptions, we need, and we take, and we do all this busy work, we need to-do lists, and we need to reorganize the to-do list, and we need to color code it, and it's like, stop, <laughs> like, we need to, like, we need people, we need to recruit right. people, we need to build relationships, like, this stuff does not matter. Yeah. Like, we can sort this all day long. Like, and we can use Trello or, uh, you know, whatever you want to use. It doesn't matter. Sound up, uh, who cares? Uh, and so, so to force people to focus on people, I would get rid of stuff. I just would, we're not having an ATS. Um, job descriptions, delete all job descriptions. And the reason why was I started to, I was looking at the candidate experience again and saying, when people would say no about coming in post-video, once we had the video, one of the common things that I saw them saying was, it doesn't look like you have a role for me. I read the job description right. on your website, that's not for me, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I'm like, go on the website, what are the job descriptions? I'm like, what are these? And I'm like, delete them all. And people are like, oh, we need the job recs, we need the job recs. I'm like, the job recs don't matter. What matters is getting the people. Right. And by the way, uh, who cares about the job recs? Because I made up all the job recs, and uh, and I just made up a bunch of bullets in them, and I just put them in last week. 
So and most people go online, look up another similar job and yeah. copy and paste. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like I made everything up on the job rack. I also had noticed that in the managers, like it was when we started to add managers, it was leading to bad behavior because they would be like, we got to hire Keith. Um, why are we hiring Keith? Because he, because we have this rack. Okay. Who cares about the rack? Right. Okay. Yeah. But we ha- I got to fill the rack. Okay. No, you don't. You don't have to fill the rack. Okay. But why keep? Uh, because he's, he has, see these three bullets here? Uh, he has these three bullets. And I was like, I made up the three bullets. Right. Like I made the three bullets up. Like, like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and guess what? Uh, two weeks from now, all these three bullets won't matter anymore. Right. So like, who cares about this? But they were like so tunnel visioned on this craziness that I was like, okay, we're getting rid of the job descriptions. And, uh, and so we kept doing those things. And no, everyone said it wouldn't scale, but we hired 200 engineers this way, the product team, and uh, one by one, one by one by one by one. And many of them, uh, when we would welcome them on their first day, we would make them get up in front of the rest of the team. And all of them had a crazy story about mostly Elias, because Elias would go out. And, uh, oh, Elias showed up on my house. Ha- if you know Elias, this makes sense. Uh, but it will sound strange. Oh, Elias came to my house on a Sunday night, and then he had dinner with me. Like, uh, I don't know how he found my house. Like, what? You know, like, yeah. Elias showed up in my uh, my rock climbing gym, and then this, and then I signed the thing, and I'm, I'm like, uh, where am I? You know, they were like, where are you? That's, that's maniacal recruiting, and you always maniacal. hear about um, founders. It's all about the team or investors, mm-hmm. yet they don't take it serious. No. Where, like, doing that is mm-hmm. like, if you want to get the that 10%, 1% talent, totally. you have to be maniacal because they're employed, mm-hmm. and they have ample opportunities. They could work anywhere they want. Totally. So you have to go get the talent, and that's... Yeah, the people that we want, we have to extract. We call it extraction at the time. That's what our code name was. It's like we, our play is extraction. We're going to extract people one at a time, but move them here, and the more that we have, then it becomes a flywheel, starts to feed upon itself. Yep. But it is exactly what you said, which is maniacal recruiting, which is the thing that people always forget. You know, in today's world, because people have figured out most of the stuff we're talking about now, like today's world, like I have this same, similar conversation with people now about um, about diversity and recruiting and, you know, how do we diverse workforces and all this stuff. And, I, and the answer is like maniacal recruiting. Right. Like, and it's like, but nobody, but nobody wants that answer. Right. right? Like everybody wants like, well, what's the program we're going to do? Like, what's the hashtag that I can go tweet about to my friends that we have this program? And it's like, that's not going to change anything. Yeah. You want to know how it is? How are you going to do it? And we say this internally. We say it to our own recruiters. Here's how it's going to happen. Uh, you're going to, instead of taking those inbound resumes that are coming to you, and that's the easiest thing for you as a recruiter to do, you are going to spend 10 times as long yeah. and go out and go find those, uh, those people, and then you're going to bring them in and we're gonna do the same thing, extraction. We're gonna find them one at a time. And you know what? It's gonna be 10 times as much work yeah. as possible. And uh, and it's gonna be painful and it's never gonna get easier. And uh, But if you want, if diversity is important to you, that's what it's gonna take. Yeah. There's no program, there's no hashtag, there's no whatever you wanna do. There's no, uh, you know, I can change my avatar on Twitter with some colors on it. That's not gonna do anything, right? Like getting out there and doing that stuff is the answer that nobody wants, but is the answer that we have to do every day. Yeah, you got to work hard at it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about drift. So yeah. we talk about starting a movement, right? Mm-hmm. So you started this whole new, mm-hmm. uh, like, like you have this ability to see kind of evolutions and build companies around. So what is drift, and what's what's kind of mm-hmm. the, the 
yeah. that evolution and mm-hmm. mission. Yeah, so when, when I left HubSpot in 14, at the end of 14, uh, September 14, uh, and started Drift October 14 officially, um, we, I had a whole bunch of things on my mind. I started, I was started with the idea of these mega trends. We saw two mega trends happening in the market that I was personally obsessed with. One was messaging. The second was video. Uh, now, and, uh, and we, we, I was looking at messaging because, uh, we had this explosion because of the smartphone. We saw this penetration happening. We saw like all of a sudden billions of people around the world were, uh, using messaging, defaulting to messaging is their first thing. But as a software engineer, as a technologist, it was the momentum was interesting, but it was also super curious because it was like none of that technology is new, right? Like Slack was starting to explode around that time. It was like the, everything around Slack. Slack was originally an IRC clone internally at um, TinySpec. That's exist. That would existed 25 years ago. Like there was nothing new there. So like, why was it happening? Right. And it was because of this this shift in user behavior. And so we saw that and said, okay, we want to start a company around that. Don't really know what that means, but like this this shift is happening. The world is going to be different. There's a paradigm shift happening right now. What we figured out pretty quickly was that the paradigm shift would would allow us was big. It was beyond messaging. It was this idea of like. We were going from a world where the company had all the control mm-hmm. and every piece of software that we had ever built in our career and that we have ever used was business software was built around this idea, this idea that the company has control and therefore they can make you do things or make you wait or make you do whatever. Uh, and then uh, that the world was shifting to this new world where it's like the customer had all the control. Everything in the world was commoditized and is becoming commoditized even, even faster, right? It's accelerating. Customer has all the control, and then that changes, that flips everything when it comes to marketing and selling. And so we said we're going to use messaging to kind of uh, bring in this new world. So what Drift is is we created this category called conversational marketing, and what that means is like we're trying to go back to basics, back to the old world before we got crazy with metrics and this and that and scaling and PPC and whatever, and saying the fundamental truth is that. If you have a sales team of any sort and you have customers, that no sale will ever happen unless you have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like it's, impo- it's not going to happen. And so why don't we start with the conversation versus starting with the other plumbing and say, how do we have more conversations? How do we make those conversations faster? And if we do that, we think we'll deliver a better experience for the customer, the buyer, and the buyer is in control now. And if the buyer has a better experience, Therefore, the company will probably have better performance. And so that's the very idea. And so we started with a very simple thing, which is you put Drift on your website. It's a, it's a chat widget on the side. It's really focused on the sales and demand gen use case. And so it makes a B2B website. It turns a B2B website from a catalog that's only available uh, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, East Coast hours, to something that's available 24-7, 365, seven days a week. And, uh, and we do that because we use a bot to be able to have, to be able to answer questions for the, for the customer, uh, help them get an answer. And the customer uses it not because they like bots or they don't like bots or they like conversations or not conversations, but because it's the fastest path to getting the answer that they need. Right. And that's why they use it. And, uh, and because of that, we're able to deliver better performance for people. So it's basically like a fast lane. Instead of going to form, 
marketing automation leads, this, that, qualification, blah, 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 all this stuff, which is going to take days, weeks, months, or forever. And for a lot of companies, it turns something to something that you can turn a visitor into an opportunity or into sale uh, in the same session in the fastest cases. So when they finally do talk to the salesperson, like that knowledge is already so much further ahead. Yeah, and it's, just, it's the right salesperson. Right, it's, uh, you're you're not having the Comcast experience of who are you, what are you, what do you want, da, 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 any of that stuff. This context, uh, there's the right person for them to talk to, and that person is there, and everything is built around the buyer. So it's at the buyer's request, it's at the buyer's schedule, it's at the buyer. The buyer is fully in control versus the company, and the company is there to serve them uh, in the best way. Now, as part of building this company, one of the things that you've concentrated on since day one was brand. Yeah. Why? Like, why, why is that so meaningful to you? Yeah. Uh, it has to do with the era of SaaS that we're in. Uh, so I say there's these three eras of SaaS that, for the, the life of SaaS, right? The first era was uh, the Salesforce era, the kind of uh, 2000 era that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That was about pure invention. That was like, if you could just spell SaaS, right. uh, you're good. You could have some technology notes around that. Awesome. Uh, the second era was the era of where we started Performable and HubSpot started and Zendesk and all these kind of new relic and blah, blah, all these companies that are pretty large now, Box and et cetera. That was the era of uh, factory building. That was like, okay, people can spell SaaS now and, uh, and people know how to build this technology and it's being adopted, but how do we uh, focus on the right customer? How do we have the right metrics? How do we have the, you know, are we vertical SaaS or horizontal SaaS? Are we, you know, aimed at CS versus support versus sales versus whatever? Like, you know, are we inside sales versus field sales versus freemium versus, these were all the questions that we were all trying to answer at that time because no one knew the right answers or how even the mechanics work there. And then when we started Drift, we were already in the third era, right? And the third era was like, everyone knows that stuff now. It's all on the internet. They could read David Scott's blog all day long. They could read Saster. They could read Lincoln. There's books. It's all out there. Now it's about, and because of that, there's thousands of, when we started Drift, there was probably 5,000 companies, according to Scott Brinker's thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably 12,000 right now, right? You know, uh, and that's accelerating, not decelerating. Right. And so we said, this is what's going to happen. Uh, now that everything's going to be com- commoditized. And I also thought that software, like nobody cares about software anymore, right? That's my notion. Like no, the software is going to, like if software is effective, it should not even be something that we ever talk about, right? It's just like, I need something, right? And I always use the example of like, is Uber software? I don't know. Like, I don't know what that is. Or is it people? Right. I don't know. I don't know. If, is it AI? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably, it's all of those things. You know, is Google any of those things? Yeah, it's all of those things. I don't know. But I don't think about, it's not like in the early 2000s or late 90s about like, I'm buying software. It's like I'm buying outcomes, I'm buying experiences. And so we wanted, in order to stand out amongst all these companies and create a category and do everything that we wanted to do, we said from the very beginning we were going to be deliberate about building a global brand and a global brand that is close to our type of customer and over time will deliver whatever that customer needs. Uh, and today it's software and tomorrow it could be water bottles and the next day it could be something else. I don't know uh, all the things, all the places that customers will take us, but we are here in service of a particular type of customer and a particular type of use case. And uh, wherever that takes us, we will serve that customer. And what's your goal with Drift? Like, what's, 
you know, you've started multiple companies, mm-hmm. you've seen multiple exits. Like, what's kind of the that pinnacle of you feeling like, wow, I, I did it with Drift? Yeah. Uh, you know, we always say we want to build an enduring company, right? We said that in the early days of, uh, we said it in a little different way, kind of, at Hubstar, we always said we want to build a pillar company in Boston because we had felt like that there weren't many pillar companies left in Boston at the time. That sounded like grandiose and nuts, and we didn't know how we were going to do it. Uh, and so... Um, we didn't have examples of it, and so we set out to do that. And drift very similar. It's like we want to build. We think there's a paradigm. This paradigm shift is undeniable. I don't know if it's going to take five years or ten years or twenty years. I don't know. Some somewhere in between there. And um, and that we want to lead this shift, and we want to build an enduring company, and we want to, if we're going to work this hard and try to create this thing, that we want to at least try to create. It doesn't mean we'll succeed at all, but at least try to create something that that lasts. Um, beyond us and serves our customers. So that's the goal, and uh, we'll see if we can do it. Now, part of building the brand is also, um, you know, you have these extensions, the Seek and Wisdom podcast, mm-hmm. and then all the spin-off podcasts, and then you have, you know, Hypergrowth, which is, you know, a massive conference. So, yep. so how does that factor into the overall equation of, you mm-hmm. know, building a brand? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's all, uh, there's a thread, just like my career, there's a thread that weaves all those things together that, at first, they seem kind of totally separate because we have a podcast called Seeking Wisdom, which is now a network of podcasts um, that really have nothing to do with drift or conversational marketing or any of this stuff, which is really around learning, you know, which is the thing that fuels me. That's how we started Seeking Wisdom. It's around learning. It's around this customer centricity kind of obsession and learning in this new in this new world that we're in, right? And so. We talk about the seeking wisdom. We talk about that from a product standpoint, from a, mar- a growth marketing standpoint, from a marketing standpoint. We have shows coming that will be focused around sales, around operations. We have a whole bunch of stuff. But it's basically, you know, that and hypergrowth and everything that we're trying to do at Drift is, like, we're trying to teach the world about, like, what does the modern company look like in this world where the customer has all, all the control, right? Because it redefines every part of your company, even though we only serve sales and marketing today, but everything is shifted in this world, right? And so that is the thing that ties it all together because that is the, the future that we're headed towards. And uh, the hypergrowth, you know, came out of Seeking Wisdom. Right? Seeking Wisdom ended up creating a, a community on its own, which surprised us. And then, you know, we said we wanted to do a meetup, uh, which we called hypergrowth. That's how it started. Uh, oh, it's going to be a meetup. And uh, we'll get a couple friends to talk, and uh, and but at some point uh, we set some number of attendees, and every number that I see, then I had like ten exit and ten exit and ten exit, up and, and gave Dave <laughs> a, a heart attack, and then finally a thousand people, yeah, a thousand thing. people, and he was like, uh, I've never seen him so, so frightened. Yeah, yeah. No, we need a thousand. How could we not get a thousand? And uh, and we we did it in the first year. And it surprised me. And we made it on purpose, not about marketing, not about sales, not about drift, not about any of this stuff, but about uh, growth. How do we grow from all these different dimensions? And we had people talking about health and talking about, uh, you know, emotions and from the mental mental side of health, which meditation and et cetera. And we talked about sports and military and all these different facets of life and some marketing. And then uh, we did it again last year, and we did it in two cities, and we did 4,500 uh, people last year, and it was uh, San Francisco so and Boston. And then this year, uh, we were doing three cities, London, 
uh, San Francisco and Boston, and we're aiming for ten thousand across all of them. <laughs> I like, I like that's a round number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do so you know that number already? Yeah, ten thousand. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about. Um, uh, the culture, right? So you, um, if you go to the Drift's career section, yep. you have principles laid out. Yes. So how should entrepreneurs, you know, you're starting a company, at what point should you really start thinking about your culture and how do you define things like <laughs> principles <laughs> or values? Yeah, I'd say uh, avoiding the mistakes. It wasn't a mistake, but we probably wasted, well, we wasted time in the early days when we were like less than five people or five people. We wasted probably too much time thinking about culture and talking about culture and trying to codify culture and all that kind of stuff. Way too much time in retrospect. But, and the reason I say it was a waste of time at that point is that really my view on culture is that culture is just the, the equation, because I think like an engineer for culture, is that culture is like the sum of the people that are in, the, in your company, in the business, in the community, whatever you're defining at that time, right then. Uh, uh, and then uh, plus the things that you promote, right, that you enforce from an incentive standpoint, like what do you, what do you incent, what do you promote, what do you stand up, what do you celebrate? Uh, and then also what, are the, what is the bad behavior that you tolerate? Culture comes down to me about the people that you have and what are you willing to tolerate? And because the minute that you tolerate something that goes against whatever principle you have, then that is the culture, right? The culture has been defined, right? And so, like, that's easy to say, just like the other stuff we were talking about, right? It's easy to say it is damn hard to do because most of the time when you run into those issues, it's because you run, you run into that issue with people who are top performers, right? Whether it's on the sales side, engineering side, where you make these compromises and you're like, yeah, you know, they don't fit or they're a problem or they're really... Uh, hurting the team, but they're a talented engineer. But and it's hard to hire them. But they bring in a lot of money. But they, and the minute you do that, that is the culture. Yeah. And so for us, we're we're maniacal around that. And at some point, we had we have always had these kind of in our head these leadership principles. Myself and Elias, but no one could read our minds. Right? Like to us, we had been working for so long that we were just like at you know osmosis. We knew what we were talking about, so at some point we had to like write them down. And uh, Carrie, who came in, uh, she came from Zappos and Amazon and had come from the uh, leadership training side of that, kind of forced us over a series of weeks, if not months, to like sit down and revise and write them and really forced us to do it. And it's been one of the best things ever, but we did it at the right time. We did it at the time when we were probably, you know, like 60... 60 to 70 people, something like that. And, uh, but it was right around the time that we were really starting to accelerate because we entered last year, uh, 2018, with 80 people. And, um, and then we exited the year at like 250 people, something like that. So we, it was right before that explosion happened of people hiring. And so we had them at the right time. And they've taken a life of their own. Uh, people use them internally. We use them for... You know what we reward people use them and how they do one-on-ones they kind of like we really did a v1 of them and uh, wanted to see what would happen and we use them all the time Elias and myself and it's interesting to see it now like being used in lots of different ways within the company Mm -hmm. you're also known as a you know a very Mm -hmm. product-minded like one of the top product minds in boston in the tech circle so 
why do you think uh, so many entrepreneurs miss the mark of that you know customer of uh, you know building what the customer wants? Like, mm -hmm. how should entrepreneurs think about like building products yep. that hopefully will grow and scale? Yeah, I think the you know the answer is pretty simple: ego. That's the only reason. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, uh, it's something that we talk about a lot uh, in Drift, at Drift, and uh, it's something that we all struggle with, including myself, even though I talk about it every single day. Uh, ego is the thing that prevents that from happening. Um, you think you know what the customer wants? 100%. Like every, every uh, misjudgment error that we all have, whether it has to do with product or not, starts with, um, you know, probably words like, I know that, or I know, you know, I know. Right, like I know, right, like this certainty around, like I know, I know what the customer wants, I know what I want to build, I want it, and I already know that. Like it always has I and no in there, right? And the, the minute you you do that, what happens is that the blinders go up, happy ears come out, and you only see what you want to see, right? And you cannot hear. And all the big failures that I've had, which is many, uh, including all the failures that we've had at Drift. All every time I look at it, it had to do with ego, collective ego as a team, personal ego. It had something to do there because we couldn't hear, right? We couldn't hear the feedback. We couldn't hear what was going wrong. We couldn't see what was going on because we were blinded by our egos wanting to do the thing that we wanted to do. Uh, so again, it, it's easy for me to say, but we struggle with it every day and we focus on it every day. That is the thing that limits us uh, the most. Uh, well, I have some. Uh Rapid fire question. Yes, yeah, shoot. So, along the lines of product, right? Name two great product leaders in Boston. That's a tough question. You shouldn't ask the product guy that because the product guy has a, will say nobody is good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's funny because, uh, like, whatever discipline you come out of, like, then hiring someone in that area is always the hardest. So, if you're like a sales CEO, then you can never hire a sales leader because. You're whatever, right? You always yeah. be like you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same for me. I'm a product guy, so I'm like product leader. That is good. Um, product leaders in Boston. I don't know. I like Adam, uh, who used to run product at TripAdvisor. Uh, yeah, at X now. I have a lot of respect for him. I could not have a more opposite style than than he does in terms of product, mm -hmm. uh, but. You know, mine is not right, and his is not right, and no one is right, and I respect what he does uh, pretty good. Um, I think, Paul, you know, Paul English has a knack for product, even though it's titled CTO, and I like the way that he thinks about things, for sure. So I mean those two. So I had Paul English on the podcast, and what blew my mind is mm -hmm. they didn't have a product no. team at Kayak no. for the longest time. Mm -hmm. Like, like just very long time. Like, yeah, very long time. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just fascinating. Um, now, as I entered the lobby here at Drift, yeah. you know, you've got all these books, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, They're all free. Feel free to take as many so as you want. So the one that you talked about, or you talk about a lot, you talk about a lot of books, but yeah. uh, the Sam Walton book, right? Yeah, yeah, number which, one. So, you know, um, today I'm like, I need to get that book. So, so I was talking to Ashlyn, and she's like, take a book. I'm like, can I really take a book? So, yeah. so I did grab a copy, so I'm excited to read that. You can grab as many others. There's, uh, if you see t-shirts, hats, whatever, take it all. Yeah, I grabbed the white t-shirt, yeah. so I've got some swag too. Nice. So thank you. Um, but what are the two, and this might be hard because you've got so many good books, books that you recommend, but what are the two must-read books that every entrepreneur should, should check out? Man, you're killing me today. <laughs> uh, these, uh, uh, it's tough. I think, you know, one, because... 
because you come from the recruiting side, I'd say is super relevant for everyone listening. If the, if they do recruiting, which everyone here should be doing, is uh, I think the talent code is very good. Uh, so Daniel Coyle wrote that book. There's three books. I kind of read them. I found one, and then I ended up reading all three of them, right, back to back. When I was on, we have these uh, three-year sabbaticals at Drift, so I did my three-year sabbatical in July, uh, which is a month off. And so I read, first I read The Culture Code, and, uh, and then I was like, I love this. And then I read The Talent Code, which is the same author, and then I read The Little Book of Talent, uh, which is a, uh, another book by him. But The Talent Code is really good. I read that. I recommend that to everyone. Okay. Um, that or The Culture Code is a good one. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. You know, there's, uh, I think about books that I revisit all the time, and I, I still think The Hard Thing About Hard Things yeah. is a really good book. And, um, and I, I read that book uh, repeatedly, and then beyond that, there's a whole bunch of other books that I can go into. But, I, you know, I, that is the first book. You know, again, coming from an era of um, when I was starting companies, first couple companies, um, the only books that existed that you could read were, like, from, like, Fortune 100, like, Jack Welch's, you know, G, and it was like, well, yeah. you know, the Elephants Can't can Dance, you know, IBM, and it was like, those were the only models we had. It was like, uh, I, I don't know what to do with this. Um, but then all of a sudden, uh, Ben Horowitz wrote uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and it was the first book that I, business book that I read that I was like, this came from a real person. Yeah. This was a real person. And, uh, and he describes that, and most of his story in that book is around the same era of compete, around the recession and this and that, and that was the first like, that I could viscerally feel that time again of like, this oh, is yeah. 100% right, right? And uh, What's so, fun like, about that book is he's talking about his competitor, mm-hmm. Blade Logic. Oh, Blade Logic, yeah, 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 yeah so, that was in Boston, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that's funny because Blade Logic, anyway, Mark Cranny, who is at Blade Logic and then up working in Jason Horowitz? So small. Yeah, yeah. right. It's Steve Kokino yeah. on the podcast, and I'm like, the first question, I'm like, so what's it like having one of the most famous entrepreneurial books out there, and you're like the the enemy. The enemy. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. So uh, to wrap things up, um, two two part question: How do you prioritize your time, and like, do you have like a daily routine that you generally follow? I have a morning routine, and so um, you know my cap. <laughs> calendar is booked right uh, all the time like everyone else and so like you know but I, I you know we give out this book at Drift another book I recommend which is called The One Thing which is a book you could read in like two hours it's by Gary Keller who started Keller Williams largest real estate um, firm in the world and um, anyway the whole idea of the book is like focus on one thing per day uh, it's really and I like everything in business books like it's it's derivative, right? It comes from one of the principles in the seven ha- uh, habits of effective, highly effective people, which is uh, by Stephen Covey, and he calls it big rocks. So, like, start by addressing the biggest rock possible versus, you know, filling your day with little rocks because you have only a certain amount of energy, and so, like, you can fill the, the pot with lots of little rocks that add up to nothing, or you can have a lot big rocks in there, and if you have spare time, you fill them in with little things. And so my approach is that, I kind of, like, I try to focus on, I only care about getting one major thing done per day and uh, whatever that I think that will have the most leverage. Like that could take me two minutes or that could take me a week, right, to do that one thing. But that is the one thing that I'm focused on. And then if I have other time, then I do meetings and I do all this other stuff around me, but I only care get, about getting one thing done. And then from a routine standpoint, I have a morning routine about that I do yoga, I do reading, I do all of this, I take my kids to school, I do all of this stuff before I ever 
um, get on email or touch a device, touch device. What time do you wake up? Uh, five something, you know, depends on the day, like five twenty one usually. Then <laughs> uh, uh, so I wake up around there and do that stuff, and then you know make coffee, do this, so do a whole bunch of stuff. But I wanted, I want to start each day with some like semblance of control because the rest of the day is out of control like most of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, obviously, Drift is hiring. Yes. So, uh, you know, you can come to VentureFizz and check out their biz page to see their job openings and, of course, the Drift Careers page with this plethora of opportunities. Yes, I think, you know, we're, I think we'll hire 200 people this year. Wow. So, awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank well, you. David, thank you for, the, for your time. This is awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.